This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to Extangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Today's guest is Scott Okamoto, author of the book Asian American Apostate, Losing Religion and Finding Myself at an Evangelical University. Scott and I are friends. We last spoke on the podcast in 2021. He's also the host of the Chapel Probation podcast, which I have been a guest on as well. And I really loved his book and provided a blurb for it. Um, If you went to a Christian college, you are going to really enjoy this book from a faculty person's perspective. He talks about the ways in which his classroom experiences that we get into it in the interview, uh, but so much of it is built around that classroom experience at a Christian college and all the other things that happen around it, as well as his experience as an Asian American man in a broadly white place. Um, We talk about all of that and much more in this interview, which we'll get right to. As always, you can support this show via a subscription to my newsletter at the Post Evangelical Post. You can find that on Substack or at postevangelicalpost.com. You can subscribe for free or you can upgrade to a paid subscription at $5 a month or $50 a year and get ad-free podcast feeds, exclusive writing, things like that. If you want to support the show in other ways, you can also go over to postevangelicalpost.com slash support. You can also find links to Scott's book and many of the other books uh, from the many authors who've been on this show over at bookshop.org. That helps support independent bookstores and helps support this show via my affiliate bookshop there. Other things, you can buy merch. All those other things you can find over at postevangelicalpost.com support. And finally, if you want to rate and review the show, that still does help even this in this day and age, this late stage of podcasting. Thank you very much. Let's get to the interview. Hello, welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest today is Scott Okamoto, author of the new book, Asian American Apostate. Losing Religion and Finding Myself at an Evangelical University. Scott is also the host of the Chapel Probation Podcast. Scott, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. I remember you closed out, I think it was 2021, having me on, and we just sort of chatted about, oh, the year and all the things we were going to (laughs) do. Yep, yep. And now... uh, And we did them all, so here we are. (laughs) That's right. Congratulations on the publication of your book. Uh, it's, I'm really thrilled to talk to you about it. My own time sort of at an evangelical college uh, as a student was so incredibly formative in a number of ways. Which you talked really, about I, on chapel probation. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll definitely add all those, all those prior conversations into the show mm-hmm. notes so that you can have the entire scope of. Yeah. So you can catch up. <laughs> 
That's we right. should give Can't... people a minute to, to go back and listen. Uh, we'll just yeah. wait here. Hit okay. pause. What? pause. Okay, great. Okay, resume. We're back. <laughs> We're back. Um, it was it was really really eye opening to um to see these sort of struggles from the perspective of someone on faculty. Um, but before we get to your time as faculty, which is the majority of your book, I want to rewind the clock a little bit first into your story, um, because you actually went to a secular school, UC San Diego, for undergrad. So what was what was that? <laughs> I mean, that's just a completely foreign experience to me. What was that like? And then <laughs> what brought you to what you call in the book EVU for Evangelical University? Yeah. And I don't if we can use the real name if you want. <laughs> I just did that as, a, as an olive branch for APU. Um, but <laughs> okay. um, yeah, well, I grew up, you know, a very strong Christian and feeling like if I wasn't going to be a pastor or a missionary or something, I should go out into the, you know, quote unquote, real world. And, um, you know, I had good grades and did, you know, okay on the SAT. Uh, I'm not very good at math. That really hurt. Um, and so I got into UC San Diego, which was an up and coming school at the time. I wouldn't be able to get in now. <laughs> it's really, those smart kids going to those schools now. Um, <clears throat> but I saw it as, you know, me, Christian, going out into the world to, I don't know, do, do what we do, proselytize, uh, save mm -hmm. it, uh, redeem it, <laughs> all this, this horrible colonizer kind of mentality of, you know, I'm going to go and, you know, make a mark for Jesus. And um, so it never even occurred to me to apply to a Christian school. Um, you know, in, in, in my youth, I felt like it would have been like the easy way to go to a Christian school. So I was going to really test my faith and, you know, go to this big secular science school. I, I did join InterVarsity Christian Fellowship while there. So I kind of had, you know, the church, uh, the church vibe it still, you know, we still had, we had meetings. I led worship, I led Bible studies. We, we planned events to, to evangelize to the campus. So there was plenty of cringeworthy Christian stuff going on, but I did get a very good education, even when I switched to an English major. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I got to hang out with, uh, you know, Tony Morrison came and visited. So I had, I had experiences at that school that you would never have at a Christian um, school, you know, Nobel laureates giving talks on campus, politicians uh, coming to give talks. So um, I, yeah, I really valued it even as a Christian. Cause I felt like, well, we have to be in the world, but not of it, <clears throat> but I'm going to be in it and I'm going to understand it and how, how it works. Um, so <laughs> at the time, so mm -hmm. I could better evangelize to it, but really it ended up just being a, an interesting component in my own deconstruction because I saw, you know, a bigger world than I ever imagined when I was, when I was a Christian. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that a little bit about, cause it, it seemed like it was sort of the quality of your classes that, that, that really expanded that beyond what you may have assumed um, going into, going into an undergrad. And again, as you said, that sort of, um, condescending sort of point of view that a lot of Christians have that, that like, they're going to be, they're going to benefit from my presence here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it only took a couple of weeks before me to be humbled in so many ways when, you know, professors 
knew the Bible better than I did. Um, I even had like sweet mates who were like party animals who knew the Bible better than I did. You know, I, it was mm-hmm. it was super humbling in in one sense, but also it was like it was like no pain, no gain, man. Where you know I'm I'm, I'm being humbled and I'm going to grow from this and I'm just going to read up more. And I read apologetics and Bible concordances and dictionaries to try and figure stuff out that, you know, that I did my best, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I did all the things I, I led worship. I was on the leadership. I, I, I uh, led Bible studies. I, I trained Bible study leaders. Um, I was on the track, you know, with university to, to, it really felt like we were on like the front lines of, I don't know, the, the war for, for the soul of America or something like that. And, um, mm-hmm. but that only lasted a couple of years before I started deconstructing and, you know, the questions that were being raised in my classes, um, whether they were science classes or literature classes, or, you know, they had a humanity sequence where you had to read the whole Bible. Um, and I think that was the first time I read like most of the Bible, like, you know, in one go. Mm-hmm. And that there's nothing like reading the Bible to, kind of screw up your, your, your notions of faith and the assumptions you have about what Christianity is or isn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you continued your, your education. You went to, to Matt to get a graduate degree. And then after that, you entered the workforce looking for a teaching position. So, yeah. uh, so what, you know, you initially had this perspective of, I'm going to be a light in the darkness, you know, you know, I'm going to, um, you're not going to hide it under a bushel and all of those things. Yeah. Um, (laughs) but, uh, Oh, it hurts to think about, but yes. (laughs) Uh, but what brought you, what, what put an opportunity like the one at, uh, and I'll follow your lead, whether you want to say EV. Yeah, it's APU. APU. Azusa Pacific University <laughs> in Ca- Southern California. <laughs> well, the, the, that sort of haughty, you know, I'm going to say I'm saving the world vibe was quickly replaced by, I just, I just don't want to be, I don't want to be a dick. <laughs> I don't want to, I, I want to be the good Christian. I don't, I don't want to be like these angry, uh, conservative fundamentalists. You know, I, I'm the relatable guy, you know, I, I, I'm not. <laughs> your typical Christian, it, it quickly became this sort of like sales thing, like PR thing to say, <laughs> I know what you see in the media. And this is like the nineties, right? It's like, I know what you see, you know, with Newt Gingrich and uh, all, all these <clears throat> politicians and pundits and pastors seem so angry and hateful. That's not me. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a cool Christian. You know, I, I'll go out and have a beer <laughs> with my, my classmates and yeah, yeah. represent, you know, uh, uh, relational ev- friendship evangelism. What's what's what was it called? Um, yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Something so, like that. yeah, it, it it was. Let's let's just take that down a notch, and then those notches just kept going down to zero. <laughs> mm-hmm. So by the time I I got hired, you know, I was teaching at community college, and I got hired to teach at Azusa. Um, about a year into my teaching experience, and I didn't think I would I would stay. But I knew how to speak evangelicalese and I knew, and I didn't, yeah, I figured I'd teach there for a couple of years, get the experience, move on to something else. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I just, I felt like I understood those students because even though we were at a Christian setting, I feel, I felt like I saw a lot of myself in in those kids. 
um, who had questions and who had very, very little understanding of how the world worked. Um, that, you know, this world that I had just been in, I lived in San Francisco for four years, went to San Diego for five. Um, I was on the five year plan. So yeah, that's by the time I got there, I was like barely hanging on. I, 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 I didn't like it. I didn't like including myself and under the umbrella of Christianity because I was just so embarrassed by so many things that were, you know, this beginning of Bush was just about to happen. Uh, w Bush, mm-hmm. um, and the rise of, you know, uh, the tea party and all, all these things were just about to start happening. And, um, I was already horrified by, you know, the Iraq war and things like that. So it was just, yeah. I, yeah. I but I hoped yeah. that being there would, would help me with my faith. You know, I, it still meant a lot to me because it was my whole life. And it's terrifying right, right. when you get to this precipice, right? Where you get to this point where, oh shit, I don't know what I believe anymore. And so I think the tendency is to, to cling a little bit harder and to dig a little deeper to try and, you know, salvage something. You know, did I just waste the first 30 years of my life, you know, being this? No, no, I'm going to keep digging and interrogating the faith and, and uh, learning more. Um, mm-hmm. And then that just kind of accelerated the deconstruction as it turned out. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And you started, you, you sort of uh, alluded to this, and in, in the book, you started in, in 98. Yeah. Around that time is when you first, uh, when you, when you first came on to camp, visited campus and started. Um, and I started my undergrad at Indiana Wesleyan in this, in the fall of 2001. Um, right. so my first, my first full week of college was when yeah, that yeah, so I am, I am, yes. So I am curious, like what was the political mood like sort of before and after that period? Because that is like, not, yes, now it's, it's 20 years ago. It's wild to think it yeah. was 20 years ago, but that, but, but that was definitely a watershed moment of before and after. And I, and I, I think especially on in an environment like an evangelical Christian college, a lot of shit changed really it did. fast. It did. So I'm curious. I'm curious um, during those early years, as you were seeing the first Bush campaign followed by um, followed by the nine 11 attack, followed by the American response to that. Right. What, what sort of shifted there? Yeah. So in 98, it was still a, a really innocent time. I mean, there's no internet um, and things were good. You know, I, you know, love or hate Clinton, he, you know, his eight years, the, the things were, were good here, you know, it was, wasn't great in other places. Um, but so when Bush won in a surprise in 2000, um, well, let me back up when in, so in 98, it's still like the Christians are still like, friendly <laughs> the christians are still um you know wel- welcoming you know like i walked on the campus and everyone's saying hi to me and like i'm this you know 28 year old in a in a in a shirt and tie looking super awkward i'm sure and these groups of students will walk by and say hi and i was like are, are you talking to me like 
I'm not used to like just having strangers say hi to me on a big campus. And I went to, <laughs> I went to two big, you know, schools. And so, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was an innocent time, you know, that, that, you know, if, if I brought up like, uh, abortion or something, I'm sure it would get heated, but like overall the vibe that Christians had in the nineties was still kind of like, we're the values, you know, people we, we love, we're, we're spreading Jesus's love. Um, so when Bush gets elected, it's like, eh, all right, well, that was weird. You know, he, you know, he lost the general election, you know, one on the technicality of the, the electoral college. All right. Mm. And then, you know, that first year of 2000, not, not a lot happened. You know, he, he just, he went to his ranch and he was like, um, he was like an absentee president cause not a lot was going on. And then bam, nine 11 happens. And suddenly he's, you know, he's a war president and the culture that shifted was now it's like, oh, now we hate brown people. <laughs> we don't, you know, there were people going around shooting, you know, Latinos and Hispanics because they thought they were, you know, um, Middle Eastern, you know, and so it was like the first step of, of this sort of reclaiming whiteness that, that I think. Obama finished off in 2008. You know, it was like 9-11 was the license to to suddenly like, I want to nuke the entire Middle East is what I would often hear my students say. Uh, or let's, you know, just carpet bomb the whole place. You know, I think it was Ann Coulter that said we should just nuke the whole entire Middle East and whoever survives will convert to Christianity and then the world will be fine. That was kind of like the, the vibe of evangelical Christianity. Um, post 9-11 it went from family values and loving people to uh let's get revenge and let's let's kill a lot of people and um yeah it, the hoods came off i remember in, in your episode in chapel probation you you had mentioned that that shift in and the following years was part of what you were trying to distance your own self from while yeah. you were a college student yeah yeah i mean that was a part of my deconstruction was like I, for me, it was this, it was this really stark divide between my history classes, the ones that were in the history department, um, from, you know, someone, a professor who I could now identify as like more of a Christian reconstructionist, uh, type person, um, versus what I was learning in like Bible classes and things like that. And like, you know, it's supposed to be serving this this person we call the prince of peace and like people are clamoring for war and uh, you know that that doesn't that doesn't uh sit right <laughs> so it yeah. was it was definitely uh a, for me as a student you know it was definitely one of the things that was very 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 uh uh significant in like my own political and social shift uh away from like the sort of default republicanism that I think is the sort of inheritance of, um, you know, anybody born after the 1970s in, yeah. <laughs> in evangelicalism, uh, by and large. So, yeah, 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 yeah. I like, I definitely like that you the way you called out the sort of political vibe and how it affected faculty. In the book, there's this. Um, uh, I'm going to quote from it. Uh, it says, there was a strange vibe in this evangelical school, perhaps not unlike many others. 
faculty members generally did not let others know their political leanings. It was just too dangerous for either side. And um, I'd love for you to share a little bit more about that. And I'm curious, was that something that was uniform sort of across departments? Or was this something where like uh, you as sort of a uh, English English department at my school was sort of considered a more, uh, you know, threatening one than some other. Yeah, because because <laughs> they're liberal the status quo. <laughs> yes, yes. Liberal. I'm putting in quotes. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, there, there were departments that were unilaterally conservative fundamentalists and they were loud and proud Republicans. Um why is it always a history department? It's always like, yeah, they, they were, they were very political, but, um, most of the departments that were trying to be academic had to toe this line of, of we're, we're top-notch scholars and, you know, educators in this ivory tower. So that doesn't jive well with fundamentalism. So there's that recognition. But you can't be anti-fundamentalism because then that gets you in trouble culturally. So professors at these schools that are trying to be real schools, that are trying to be, you know, they're accredited. They have, um, mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. offer all these degrees, in, including some graduate degrees. You know, they're trying to play this game of, you know, we're, we're an evangelical alternative to, you know, a big state school or a, a, a boutique, you know, liberal arts college. But it's really impossible. <laughs> To, to do that, as they have found, um, Azusa is not doing well. So yeah, the, it, so the English department especially was it was fascinating because we had enough respect for each other as scholars to not heavily identify with the, the hardcore fundamentalists, and um, there were enough people that had degrees from you know real schools, you know doctorates. I didn't, but um, that they would they would not risk one of two things they if if they if so like with with the iraq war if they came out against the iraq war they risked being exposed as a liberal which is a no-go in this in this community mm -hmm. but if they are pro-war then they risk being seen as a fundamentalist who doesn't pay attention to history and 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 culture and um academics and so my department, we were very respectful of each other and we really, unless you're just one or two of us are talking as a group, avoided politics as much as we could. Um, and, and I got that sense from colleagues in other departments as well. It's just because you know, you're going to be in trouble with someone. <laughs> if, you, if you reveal who you voted for or where you side on you know, gay marriage or um, abortion or something like that, it's just... You have you only have things to lose. There's nothing to gain in this culture because you're going to get dinged for one or the other for not being academic enough, for not being intellectual enough, or not being conservative fundamentalist enough. And so that was the tension that I saw throughout the campus. Like I said, other than the few departments that were just hardcore fundamentalist and loud and proud about it. Yeah. Did you? go into teaching sort of aware of how your classes would be constricted and that tension between those things of, you know, not wanting to, to be too fundamentalist, not wanting to be too liberal, not like having to toe this very specific line. 
Um, like, like when did that become apparent to you as, as someone that like, like you, you have this charge to, to teach something. Yeah. But then you also have this other, other thing going yeah. that like, that is imposing upon it all. Yeah. Well, I was aware of it when I got there, but I didn't know. I didn't, I believed the school when they said they believed in academic freedom and that they're an accredited school and, you know, they're top notch educational institution. I stupidly believed them when they said that and I got, <laughs> got in trouble immediately for the next 15 years, you know, every semester, because it's, they don't mean that, you know, they, they want, they want the impression, you know, to the public to be where this top notch educational blah, blah, blah. But really, it was just Sunday school, you know, with, with, with some interesting things you can learn and a degree you can get. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and I write in the book and I, I tried to use the F word to teach parts of speech because it worked really well at community college. You know, <laughs> you, fuck can be a noun. It can be a, 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 a verb. You can modify it yeah. to be, a, a, you know, adverb or adjective. And that worked beautif- beautifully at community college. Um, and when I encountered students who didn't know what an adjective was, I thought, oh, I, I'll, I'll do this. And <laughs> I, I was almost fired in my like third week of teaching because, uh, students, uh, did not appreciate the pedagogy of using a profane word to teach grammar. Um, and their parents didn't either because they called, um, mm. the school. So it was that kind of thing, you know, like it, you, you no bad words, you know, oh, Okay. I mean, I knew it would be, you know, tricky or it, it would be, I thought it was going to be a gray area <laughs> and it was not right, gray. Right, it right. was black and white and I stepped in it. You know, I just, <laughs> um, yeah. And then even just talking about things like racism, you know, students hated that. They're like, why, why are you bringing this up? You're just dividing people. You know, you're, you're not being, you're not having grace for the racists. <laughs> You're not, it's just like, uh, okay, I, I see, you know, mm-hmm. that's what I was up against. Yeah. And so much of your book is really rooted in the classroom experience itself. Um, you know, a lot, so you share so many anecdotes, uh, about what happened in the classroom that are really, I think very illustrative of how evangelicalism really deeply affects people's thinking. Um, yeah. What what were some of the some of your favorite ways to to introduce, you know, thought provoking questions yeah. for your students that that, you know, they may not have gotten elsewhere uh, because because I, I was certainly in classes that felt more like a Sunday school class at my college sometimes like not it wasn't uniform. There were some classes that were hard as hell, yeah. but it all depended yeah. on the it all depended on the instructor. Yeah, like totally. one if an instructor wanted to phone it in, if they put a, you know, a Christian glaze on something, yeah, then they could they could phone it in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And by phoning it in, it's like scholastically or academically, because they they were definitely like there was a definitely a vibe of professors trying to be like pastors. Right, right, right. Because so, in, yeah. like in the religion department, there may be past pe- teaching people how to be be pastors. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I'm talking about math teachers. 
And, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, you know, I would, I would eavesdrop on as I walk past classrooms or sometimes just sit outside of open doors between classes. And I was like, wow, it's so it's, yeah, a lot. Yeah. Like you said, it depended on the professor, but in my class, I tried to, the things that made my class so fascinating was because I was a journalist before I did this, um, I learned how to create a safe space for people to just share whatever they were thinking without fear of repercussion. Mm -hmm. And so, and I didn't mean, I didn't do that as a, as a way to deceive them or trick them into saying something, but I really wanted to create a space where anyone could share what they were thinking about it and have it put to the test in, in a, in an academic setting. Um, you know, and I learned a lot just from hearing my students' perspectives. Because I knew if I came in as like, I'm Mr. Liberal and I hate conservatives, you know, no, they weren't going to talk. They sure. weren't going yeah. to weren't gonna share, unless they were, you know, there were some brave souls that wanted to fight me. But I, that's the last thing I wanted. I wanted a safe space where I, look, look, I care about you. I care about your learning. Um, I have some perspectives and, you know, I want you to, to share your life, your experiences, your thoughts. And so... Mm -hmm. For better and for worse, that made for amazing classes because <laughs> students felt safe to just say whatever the hell they wanted. And right, my right, God, right. did they say some shit that just jaw-droppingly bizarre, hateful, just ignorant stuff, you know? And so I, I see it. I didn't write this in the book, but I, I really see it as a credit to uh, professors like me who can create a space where students are willing to just let it, let it fly, you know? <laughs> Because where else are they going to get an opportunity to to test out their their most innermost thoughts to 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 see how it lands in a in a community setting, you know that and and to have pushback, you know I I saw pushback not as a punishment but as as an opportunity to to learn and grow, you know. Some of my favorite moments when I was a college student was when I would write something or you know if I did participate in class, um, have the professor you know, say, well, here's why that doesn't work <laughs> or here, or here's, here's more to this than, than what you're understanding. Um, you know, yes. And here, here's, here's where that fits in, in the, in the sphere of, of thoughts, you know, in the, in the, on these various spectrums, you know, here, you know, here, this is where you're landing. Um, and so, yeah, students said ridiculously racist things, sexist things, homophobic things. And I would just be very blunt and say, you know, that's, this is how that lands. You know, if, if I'm, if I'm not white, this is how that sounds. Or if I'm not straight, this is how that sounds. Do, mm -hmm. Is this what you really mean? You know, to give students an opportunity to, to come back from that, to say, oh gosh, you know, that does sound hateful when, when you put it in that context, um, that's outside of my own understanding. Um, so yeah, so there's. And the great thing about, I tried to do in the book was I tried to show that, you know, there were some horrible stories, but there were some really great stories of students who did take the opportunity to reflect and to sort of grow their thoughts and, and, and in many cases change, uh, their thoughts, you know, their, their way of thinking to, to be more inclusive, to be more caring about, you know, people <laughs> that, that, that weren't right. like them. Right. Yeah. You do. You share some anecdotes of, of like, you know, white male students that, that you, that 
you gave them an environment where, yeah, they they said some some things that that are not rightfully not well received anymore. Yeah. Um. Uh. You know, but you you provided you provided an environment that allowed them to explore it and see the problems with what they were with 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 those things, and then that led. And they valued the fact that you pressed them, which which a lot of times uh, one of I think one of the issues with these schools is that um, the students and especially the parents, grandparents, trustees, donors, yeah. yeah, think that this is a that you know there's all this talk about and doctor the the thing that that cracks me up uh, yeah. uh, about the sort of current culture war is that they use this language of indoctrination with, right. <laughs> with public schooling. Yeah. Um, but that's what's happening. You know, that's what, that's their goal in a place like this, but you are providing a place where they uh, can think through the implications of what they're saying, which is, which is really valuable for a young person because a young person is someone that can't, you know, people can change at any point in their life. But especially yeah. at that period, you know, that that's that's one of the best environments to make to make those choices and changes. Yeah. And there were a lot of students that just refused. <laughs> to, you know, mm. they I hear what you're saying, but no, you know, I'm just going to stick with with what I got. And, you know, I, I think the was... most just yeah, the most disheartening one from from that the stri- most striking example was the young man who said that his father dying of cancer because he could uh, get insurance coverage yeah. for the good good treatment was good because of freedom yeah yeah this was a i mean that was one of those tragic things where the kid knew what he had to say to be a good conservative you know his his father died he said he said something like i would rather have freedom than you know socialism in medicine um and have my father get this chance to be saved he's and well, he clearly didn't mean it you know that's that's a horrible well first of all it's a horrible choice to have to make that you know that's what right. capitalism does to us is we have to measure a person's life against how much money it costs to to, to help them you know and mm-hmm. so yeah, he was trying to put a brave face on it and say, you know, and we were all crying at that in that in that story. You know, the whole class, you know, had te- well, I wouldn't say the whole class. A lot of Christians have no feelings, <laughs> and that that was chilling to see. You know, half the cl- you know, two thirds of the class is is teary, and a third of the class is just sitting there like looking bored and stoic. Um, like, wow. Really, this doesn't move. This kid's talking about his father passed away in the last year, and hmm. but yeah, he was trying right. to be brave and say, "Yeah, I would rather have freedom, you know, and capitalism than my father." Is what he was trying to say, and it's clearly he, not what he meant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On that comment about Christians, some Christians not showing any any feeling. Uh, do you think that? Do you think that is tied to their sort of? certain their sense of certainty around things that this is just the way things are um and that like that sort of 
that they, this type of teaching sort of deaden you to to injustices. Yeah, is that, do you, is that where you think that's at the root of that? Yeah, and or I is think, it something else? No, I think. Yeah, I, I don't know for sure, but my sense is being in the classroom for fifteen years. Is that you're right? It's the certainty because students would get annoyed with me if I brought in a like a news story that had something sad, you know, children dying mm. in in war or um, famine or or disease, and you know they would they would I think they saw it, and I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> I think they saw it as like a lack of faith. If you if you're gonna get all weepy about this this horrible thing then you don't have faith in God that he's in control. And, and, and some would even be able to say it that way. You know, like I believe God's in control. And so we need to be, have faith in that and confidence in that. Um, which opens up a huge theological can of worms, right? As, as to like, then, you know, how do you explain good people suffering? And um, so mm -hmm. the students, you know, when you're 18 or 19, you just think, well, if something bad happened to them, because these are kids coming from wealthy families by and large, you know, I think their lives are great. You know, they, mom and dad dropped them off, you know, in a nice Mercedes and, you know, they're from wealthy neighborhoods. You know, they went to private schools, a lot of them. What's the worst thing that happens to them? You know, in um, sync broke up, you know, um, so, yeah, the cafeteria food wasn't great that day. You know, these are kids that the human the, the length of human suffering out there just does not a, compute in their heads and so you bring up a new story and they're just like ugh, whatever you know so they, they must someone they must have deserved it is was kind of the vibe you know they they did something because it, it's biblical right if if you piss off god he he, he kind of screws you up <laughs> he, he kind of punishes and so I think in their minds it's both the simplicity of that theology of it's kind of a prosperity gospel theology and the feeling that I have to be absolutely certain and confident that God is in control. Um, so if you can crack that, man, you see a lot of deconstructing like right in that moment. It's just like, oh, crap, you know, mm -hmm. what if that's not the case? Then because if it's not the case, then I got some some serious introspection to do because my faith just doesn't add up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and go a different direction. And this is Ooh, just a little <laughs> left turn. Okay. <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I want to I want to highlight another major part of your book, which is that that you write a lot about many of this, the, the prevalence of whiteness in these spaces and the ways in which you struggled against it um, and also sought to make space for other uh, BIPOC students and staff. Um, and that's just that is a, a through line through the entire book. Uh, your your book opens with with the statement that that your your experience is dictated by the way you're perceived as a Japanese American man. 
Um, so I want to just let this sort of be, uh, I want it to be an open sort of question as far as where you, uh, you know, where you want to take this in this section. Um, but let's, how did it show up in the, in your, in your classrooms? You've already mentioned that your, your students would say, uh, racist things, whether they were ignorant or not yeah. uh, in the classroom, but then how, how did, how did this prevalence and preference for whiteness also, uh, impact outside of the classroom? Oh, okay. Well, in America in general, but especially in evangelical spaces, whiteness is not necessarily a preference is so much as it's just the default, right? It's right. Yes. That's yeah. the, that's just anything outside of that is, you know, you, you, you deal with it, <laughs> you welcome it, you, you, you crusade against it. You, you have to figure out what to do with it. And so in, in most of my colleagues and students' minds, you know, they had, they had their assumptions about what an Asian American man is supposed to be. And I did not fit any of them, I think. And that, it was terrifying for them <laughs> that, to, that I didn't speak the way they expected me to. I didn't think the way they expected me to. Um, and, you know, I wasn't like a rabble rouser in the sense that, you know, I wasn't like yelling and carrying on in meetings. But I had thoughts. I had opinions. I had, had questions. And I had a sense of humor that didn't really land in those spaces. <laughs> I, I would say something in a meeting and one person's cracking up and the, the rest of the room just glaring at me like, what did you just say? You know, it's like, oh, okay, sorry. Um, and so I wanted the book to be partly, you know, you know, this is what it was like to teach at the school. But also, you know, I learned a lot about myself, you know, with with the school and the evangelical culture as a foil to, to say, well, I clearly don't fit and, and I have a choice. I can, I can cater to the white gaze and, and the white expectations of what I'm supposed to be and fit in and succeed and, you know, have a great career possibly as a, as an educator at this school. Um, or I could really like dig into who I was and because, you know, embarrassingly, when I started there, I, I I didn't have a great sense of self. I had learned how to operate in white spaces, you know, and that's that that was a skill I had acquired through growing up as like one of the only non-white kids in my school district to um, and even doing university, you know, like we, we learned about diversity issues and diversity is always just this idea that it's, you know, it's a white space, but we're welcoming of all these different types of people. You're probably not going to be the head or the, or the head pastor. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're, you're welcome here and you know, we'll figure out what to do with you. I, I kind of broke through a ceiling. I think I was the first minority worship leader they had at that chapter ever um, mm. for however long they weren't that hadn't been going for that long. But anyway, still, I was the first. Um, so yeah, at APU, it was it was like I. It was so clear to me that because of the contrast of culture, and I was becoming involved in this sort of art space in Los Angeles called the Tuesday Night Cafe, which is a predominantly Asian American but kind of intersectional art space, and seeing people who lived just authentically as themselves without worrying about what white 
culture thought of them or how they perceived them was a revelation to me. And so I brought that vibe to, to my work and wow, that didn't fly. It was like, you know, how dare you have agency and, and, and pride in, in who you are. You're supposed to be trying to achieve whiteness, um, like all the other good BIPOC folks who are getting in line. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it was, it was hard, but it was also kind of fun. Just once I just made my decision, it was just like, well, this is who I'm going to be. This is who I want to be and they can take it or leave it. Um, I still thought I would, I would work there for a lot longer, but, um, yeah, a lot of things happened and, <laughs> uh, I was shown the door eventually after 15, I made it 15 years. You know, that's, that's kind of a miracle in it of itself. As I look back. Mm -hmm. What, how did those, those communities, I'd, I'd love to, you already said like, uh, you already, um, mentioned how the Tuesday night cafe, um, helped you sort of explore other, explore and, uh, express different parts of your your identity, uh, and that was also very interesting to me. Reading the book, uh, just this aspect of community and where you sort of sought it, both within within the confines of of APU, uh, but then these other spaces too. Um, and like then you you also were a part of a number of different student associations. Um, did you, uh, you, you did comment that you sort of brought the confidence and everything that you, you developed at the, the cafe to, to your work. Um, yeah. how did those, how did those different, like, um, those different communities and groups, um, sometimes it seemed like they intersected, but sometimes it felt like you had to keep them separate. Yeah. Like, what was that? What was that dynamic like while you were, you know, um, in this space where, what, well, where the faculty faculty are sort of, um, they're sort of under the microscope all the time too. Uh, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, definitely the student population is, you know, like yeah. you, you mentioned like the, the, um, like the, you know, the, the narcs they would send like to, <laughs> to bust parties and stuff. Yeah. Like, um, <laughs> like yeah. my, my school did that too, you know, yeah. and they would, and sometimes they would go like 30, 40 mile radius shit. Oh like, man. Like, uh, I mean, it wasn't, I was in small town, Indiana, but then like, uh, you know, there's Kokomo, there's Indianapolis, there's, N there's Noblesville, there's, there's, uh, <laughs> there's all these other places where you could go to, you know, sneak a drink or whatever. If you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyways, that's just a digression. <laughs> um yeah so, uh, so yeah. yeah yeah so the the students who go to apu the, the bipoc students uh they're a tough crowd they you know they you know some of our friends say you know women are the foot soldiers of the patriarchy well uh, bipoc evangelicals can be the foot soldiers of white supremacy you know because like kind of like how i was growing up i had bought into this idea that I could not be my authentic self. So I had to learn how to, to, to thrive in white spaces. And so by the time a kid's 18, you know, let's say they're Asian and they, and they, they're applying to college and they want to go to APU 
or in you know one of the you know evangelical schools they're pretty set in in what their mission is you know they they're not going there to 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 read about Yuri Kochiyama or Grace Lee Boggs or or and and you know really interrogate their identity as as Asian Americans they're going there to prove to themselves that they can make it in white spaces and me being there kind of ruins that (laughs) because I'm like holding up a mirror but like but this is who you are and so what does that mean and they're and they're thinking no that's not why I came here I, I I have white friends you know I I'm I'm succeeding so stop stop showing me how I'm different than everyone because I'm going to achieve this thing where I'm the same as them um, little do they know is they'll never be accepted completely as as anything other than you know a token or um, one of the good ones, quote unquote. Um, because if they really leaned into who they were as as Mexican American, as Indian American, as African American, you know, it wouldn't fit, and they would be seen as 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 weird and and suspect. So. It was really tough for me to to try and bring them into. So there was this program called the Multi Ethnic Programs, which is now defunct. And they had a they had a they had a Latino club, they had a black club, they had uh Asian. They I, I helped start the Asian club because they didn't have one before I got there. Um, but it was really hard to get people to the Asian club because I think the Asians are the worst in these in these situations because they're the, they're like they they buy into the model minority myth. And I don't know if I don't have, we probably don't have time to go into that whole thing, but it's, it's a pretty shitty thing that the U S government foisted upon Asians to, to call the Asians, the the good minorities and kind of weaponize that against other minorities in America. So kids who come to APU are, eh, there aren't many black kids and that's, that's good because <laughs> they have, they have such a hard time The the, the black club, uh, I think it was called BSA was probably the most political of all the ethnic orgs. Um, Cause they just every day, it, you know, we talk about microaggressions. They just got aggressions, <laughs> macro aggressions um, just for the color of their skin. You know, whether it was the campus safety folks harassing them or professors calling them out to represent an entire, their entire people group or just stupid things said in, in the dorms. Um, the the BSA was sort of like a haven for for black students. Um, so it was the good thing was around two thousand nine ten, all the stars aligned and the ethnic org and because oh right oh what happened Obama <laughs> two thousand eight mm-hmm. Obama was the next level of okay we're gonna really pull off the hoods you know like the it was like a license for all the kids all the non-black kids not just white kids to be anti-black and to say the n-word and to tell black jokes um it was so ugly and um that caused a few things to happen on campus some of some occurrences that had to do with swastikas and um just all kinds of things that forced the campus to sort of have a reckoning but what it did was it united the ethnic orgs, the Asian club, the, the, there was a new group called LASA, Latin American Student Association, and the Black Student Association, all kind of banded together 
for like a glorious two years before the school finally crushed them and they all graduated. And, um, but yeah, there was like a mini revolution for just a little bit where people were like, you know, they can't pretend like things are okay anymore because there's swastikas drawing, being drawn on cars. Um, we have, we have to confront this and we have to unite. Then after that, it kind of went back to <laughs> the way it was. Cause you know, with, with student orgs, you're, you're just a semester or two away from ex extinction because kids come in, kids graduate, you know, there's just constant right. flow of students coming in and out. So it's really hard to establish something that's like long standing in these spaces and the, and the schools know that. So they just, they let the revolution happen and then it died out and then went back to business as usual. Yeah. 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 I can imagine that, that, that is, that just right waiting out the clock is a very effective strategy in a, in a place like, like, yeah. and the, like similar, the school was, similar colleges. they were kind of genius because what they did was they had the beloved president. Anytime something bad went down, like, like after the swastikas, they would have a town hall and the president would go and sit in front of, you know, like 500 kids. And there would be an open mic and the kids could just let him have it. You know, like my professors are racist. You know, my classmates are racist. And, and, the, and the president would sit there, look sad and say, I'm so sorry. This is terrible. You know, we're going to fix this. And they wouldn't do anything. <laughs> but but mm -hmm. the students felt heard and they felt like they were being taken seriously. But, you know, they just were just waiting out the clock. They weren't actually going to do anything. Um, and they did almost nothing unless they were forced to. Um, so yeah, it's it was heartbreaking. Yeah. In addition to all the racial politics of of everything, there was also the the added uh sexual politics that that happened. Yeah. Um and you eventually became more strident and public in your support of the LGBTQ student population that um you know uh that this these are not certainly not uh affirming places for no. people uh with for, within that population um and that eventually led uh that in addition to all these other compounding things um was part of what led to your decision to to leave um how yeah. did those how did did were there intersections? Cause like those are very different. They're all, they're all sort of both of these, these types of associations because of be, because of what they are, uh, you're sort of in opposition to ad administrative things, uh, administrative attempts to maintain this per very particular, um, what, it, what was, what was the language you used? Uh, you know, no division, like, you know, Christian yeah. unity, that all yeah. that sort of stuff that always favors the, the, the you know, the, the majority culture. Quo. Yeah. And the yeah. majority culture. Um, all of these things you're, you know, you're, you're, you're in it <laughs> Yeah, as, as, as faculty. Um, yeah. how did that, how did that, that weigh on you? Um, I mean, yeah, it, from from day one, I would let it like slip that I was maybe not affirming, but that I was supportive of my LGBTQ 
students. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and without, I guess, and I, yeah, and I know that this is an insider show, but affirming means, you know, oh, right. uh, within the language of, of evangelicalism means yeah. that you are, you're okay with gay and queer people um, uh, doing things within the church and they're cool with God too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's beautifully put. And, um, Cause yeah, it's, it's not like uh, secular society is super great with, you know, queerness either, but. Um, sure. Right. But yeah, so I, you know, I would let it slip because my time in San Francisco as a young 20, mid twenties grad student was transformative to, to be in writing communities with, um, you know, trans people in the nineties, uh, um, with, with gay and lesbian people, um, really, really made me question everything I had been taught about Christianity and, and the views of, of queerness. To the point where, you know, I got to, I got to APU and I was just like, at the time I was just like, I don't think it matters, you know, if you're, if you're gay or if you're trans and, um, that eventually just became more and more affirming where not only is it okay, but it's great. (laughs) It's, 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 it's who these people are. It's just like, like anything. So, um, so I, I could live in this like shadows in the shadows of the school where I had this quiet space where students would, you know, come talk to me. And how sad is that, that, that the only person that they could find to talk to was this cishet dude, you know, like that taught English. Um, mm-hmm. But I had so many conversations with students who, you know, and, and in their minds, they were struggling, quote unquote, struggling with their sexuality. Um getting trying to get to a place where either they could pray it away or you know that was the perspective most of them had and here i was just saying you know just go with it (laughs) like it's what if what what if there's it's not bad that that this is who you are what if it's awesome that this is who you are Mm -hmm. um so i had a quiet little space but then i got elected to talk to be the chapel speaker one year (laughs) And stupid me went in there and like said nice things about gay people and my friends. And I had this whole message about seeing, seeing the world as a Christian, even though I wasn't a Christian through a poet's eye to see, see the whole world and all its complexity and its beauty and its horrors and its, um, and, and I included, you know, my, the gay community, you know, at the time there was no trans discussions. It was just straight or gay. So I Mm -hmm. talked about how, you know, I think it's totally Christian to wish for abundance for our gay friends. And that was, yeah, that was, it was a wonderful thing for most of the students to hear. It was a terrible thing to say at Azusa Pacific University because it put me on uh, uh, more on the radar and on the list as a bad professor. So yeah, after that, and then the, then the students started organizing. They formed this sort of underground club. You know, <laughs> they wanted me to be involved, and I knew if I did that, it was kind of game over. It was like now I'm fully involved in an organization on campus that's illegal. That you know, all it was was just a discussion group to just talk about how people were feeling and talk about resources to support them. Um, but yeah, that ended up being my undoing, and eventually I was demoted from full time, and then. I was going to be fired, but you know, I just, I talked my way back into the job and then I quit. 
<laughs> and, and, <laughs> and thus ended my time at Azusa Pacific University. But what a ride. Yeah. I mean, and honestly, I, the, the, the thing about, you know, I think you, you made a somewhat self-deprecating comment um, about, about yourself that like you, you being a cishet person, but being a person that someone could talk to, um, I do want to share, like, I actually talked to someone years ago, uh, that was, that went to my same school, um, 10, 15 years before I did. And this person was, is gay. Uh, and Mm. I, and they were not, they were not out when they were at Indiana Wesleyan, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that there was a teacher that was still there when I went there and that person was, uh, that person was, was in a similar department and I'm going to be vague cause I don't, yeah, I know yeah. they're, I know they're retired Okay. at this point, but nonetheless, it was the same sort of same type of person, same type of professor that made at least that small moment of comfort for them, you know? So don't, don't, don't sell that short <laughs> because that is that I'm sure that that was, you know, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, just a, a glass of water in hell type thing. Yeah. No, no, thank you. you know? And, and, and it, yeah. And I didn't mean to like, cause I understood, I, yeah. I understood what you said, but I, but yeah, I yeah. it was, it was an, I felt like it was an honor to be, to bear witness to these kids you know, quote unquote struggles because they're, they're at such a tough place because in their minds, you know, their salvation's in the balance of how they handle this issue of their identity. And the fact that they could talk to me about it, um, was it, it made, it made all the shit I put up with worth it to say, to be there, to, to bear witness to their story, to, to say, to be a listening ear. You know, we, there were there were tears. Um, yeah, I I slept good at night, even even the though it was it was rough, and I had put up with a lot of stuff. Um, yeah, those moments were were really special to me. And I said, you know, you know, you know how sad is it that they had to talk to me? Because you know, at a normal school, there's there's resources. You know, there's official school resources for these kids to talk to someone to a, a counselor or, or right 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 or lgbt faculty that they could talk to right but like in in these christian spaces you really have to be careful and you have to sort of suss out who's safe to talk to and the fact that they would find me to be safe to talk to um felt felt really really great because i felt like i was doing something right <laughs> um yeah yeah were those moments the sort of the reasons why you stayed, even yeah. though, you know, you were in such a different place in your own yeah. understanding of like, you, you weren't practicing this faith anymore, right. but you. Yeah. It's a, it was a big part of it for the BIPOC kids who are st- figuring it out. You know, the, you know, as a, as a teacher of any level, I've taught from, from elementary all the way up to college, you live for that light bulb moment where the, like, Oh, I get it. And so I loved that in the classroom. I was teaching English. It's a, you know, 99% of what I did was teaching English, you know, 
um, it's just the faith integration part. Okay, 90%. 10% was like this faith integration where you help these students see how their faith uh, interacts with what you're teaching. And that was easy with English. You know, I, you don't, I felt like I did a better job when I decided I wasn't Christian anymore than I did when I was a Christian because <laughs> it, it was just clearer to me, you know, here's the teachings of Jesus and here's how they line up with, you know, the political landscape of America or the history of America. And mm -hmm. man, there's some really tough conversations to be had there. Um, so when we're reading literature or we're writing arguments, it, it was just super easy. And I never tried to proselytize them away from their faith. I was just trying to point them to, uh, well, what does the Bible say? And what do you think that means when Jesus says this, you know, as to what we're talking about? Um, and it was, so it was partly the classroom experience of helping Christian kids see the world a little clearer. But yeah, for sure, being the, the LGBT club and the and the Asian club definitely were the other draw. I think it was if I didn't have one of those three things, <laughs> I would have left mm -hmm. a lot sooner. But because there was I had, you know, deep ties and roots in these three communities, um, it just kept me there. That, everyone always asks, why in the hell did you stay <laughs> as long as you did? Um, and even when I was there, people would be like, why are you even, you know, but I would tell them that that's why that's, I feel like I was in a good place to help people, um, and to, to teach English, to do my job, but also to, you know, help a small group of Christians, uh, be, be better, <laughs> not, not just at Christianity, but just people, you know, cause I would, I did that in community college too. That wasn't Christian. You know, I, I really felt like teaching English was a way to to help society be better to yeah. be thoughtful to to be critical of of things not and I don't mean just critical but to be able to critique the things that are being set, fed to you through media through through culture through through all the things so mm -hmm. um I stayed and I I don't regret it um I regret things that have happened and I regret um how it ended but that wasn't really up to me so it's um hopefully it makes for an interesting book anyway <laughs> all these yeah, years later <laughs> it, it definitely did it it definitely did it's a very interesting book uh and i and i mean we we've even though we've we've touched on a lot of different topics and things uh we really just scratched the surface of what you what you talk about in the book because i mean there's so many great anecdotes about uh, whether it's in the classroom or in some of these different di groups or clubs that you're a part of, and even the way you explored friendships and communities, uh, sort of off campus and all of these things. Yeah. It's a, it's there's, a really there's rock stars and, yeah. and uh, Gilmore girl. <laughs> That's right. Um, yes. Yes. My, my wife is a huge Gilmore girls fan. <laughs> so, ah. And so I've, I've watched a lot sort of by osmosis. Yeah, no, I have two. I you think know. I've seen mo most of half of the episodes. <laughs> exactly. Um, what do you think? Uh, what do you think? My my sort of last question for you, and I I think you'll have a very interesting take on this. Uh, is what do you think has has changed? This is it. This is another two part question. So I'm sorry, okay. but what do you think has changed? in places like APU and uh, in the years since you've left and what do you think hasn't changed? 
Um, and even even if it like whether it's on campus or you know how the campus and how these places are are perceived, wherever you want to take that that question. Okay. Yeah. Well, luckily you and I are friends with Josie Jimenez, who mm-hmm. does the Speaking in Church podcast. That's and right. She yep. arrived at APU the semester after I left. And so she was there for the next four years um, through the Trump, you know, election and all that. And she is the closest thing I have to someone on the, you know, most of my colleagues stopped talking to me after I left. Um, And a a few stayed in touch, but I tried not to talk about, you know, the school with them because I knew it was awkward. So, so hearing from Josie and other people that have been there since, um, yeah, it was it was a confusing time because the school tried to like um, step up and support its LGBTQ students, only to be smacked down by the local churches and politicians, and and then they rescinded that, and then um, then they put it back, and they took it. You know, they they had a prohibition against same sex relationships that that kept going in and out of the student handbook all within a couple of years. I, I actually mm-hmm. don't even know where they landed. It kind of doesn't matter because. They really just sort of dropped the ball and just said, whatever, let's just do what we've been doing. Um, And the other weird thing that happened when I got there in 98, it was 88% white. Uh, You know, this is Southern California. Um, I I just heard on another podcast, uh, a current professor said the school now, because uh, white folks stopped going it's 55 56 percent hispanic now which blows my mind yeah because what they you know well i don't want to get into all all the the demographic shifts but um so it's a different campus but by all accounts it's still just as fundamentalist and still tough to navigate as a bipoc or queer student um so in that sense, nothing has changed as to the values and the vibe of, of the school and what's accepted. So, um, but yeah, I, uh, I, I, just, I every time I, I think Josie gets sick of it because I'm always asking her. So when you were there, <laughs> uh, I have this morbid curiosity. Most of it, most of the time, I don't care. But if I'm talking to someone who was there after I was, I left. Um, right, right, right. It, yeah, I'm morbidly curious. Um, but it just sounded like it was just more of the same, you know. You can Josie was on my podcast too, and she t- told some of the stories of the Trump election years and and after. So, um, mm. yeah, it's more of the same. I, you know, I I, I want to say it's it got worse, you know, by by all accounts. Um, all the progress they made in the '90s and early 2000s to try and be this top notch educational institution kind of just got dropped. And let, let's just admit who we are and we're we're an evangelical institution first and foremost. And um, mm. so mm. that's, that's where the, I have a couple of people on the inside. Um, you got so some moles. <laughs> I got some moles on the inside. <laughs> All that means is there's, there's a couple of people that will still talk to me. <laughs> um, gotcha. And it's not, it's not good. It's um, they're on probation with their crediting board and, they probably won't get out of it unless there's an influx of cash from Koch brothers or, you know, one of these, these um, billionaire conservative groups. Wow. Um, yeah. It's not, they've, they last year fired 40% of the faculty just gone. Um, 
So things aren't going well. And so I feel bad. I feel like we're kicking a dying horse. Um, but you know, that's, that's where it is. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not going to shed a tear, but I'm not going to jump for joy either. If, if, if bad things befall the school. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that. I mean, that, I thank you for answering that question. I, uh, I mean, I, one addition and one thing that's changed is you're you're talking about your experiences you know you're uh you're enabling people through chapel probation and through this book uh to to you know claim their own stories and 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 share that which is which is awesome um i do have one one bonus question which is what would i have to do to get my chapel probation award back from asbury all There's, right, I knew that was going to come up. <laughs> I okay, I felt horrible doing that, but I just felt like so Blake won. I you know I I had a award quote unquote for worst chapel or best chapel probation story, and you know you beat out a tough contender in Brad Onishi. You know you both had similar situation where you missed pretty much all the chapels and had to make yeah, up for it. Yep, yep, yep. The fact that you had to listen to like two cassettes at the same time for over a long amount of time, I gave the word to you. <laughs> it was a tough call. But then, oh my God, then Asbury, you know, <laughs> does one of their forced, you know, revivals, you know, that just happened to have been, you know, promoted by Francis Chan and who actually ended up speaking at the end to round out two weeks, two weeks of chapel. So all those people, if, they, if we were there for more than a day, Oh my God. Can you imagine two weeks solid of chapel? That is all the sympathy I had for you sitting there with those tape players vanished when I thought about those poor souls sitting there singing and listening to whatever. And it's like, so I don't know, man, I don't know if you can get that one back. No. Um, Yeah. They, they deserve it. That's fine. They can, they can keep it. That's Um, big of you to, to say, because I know how much it meant to you. And, um, yeah, I mean that that was that was a high <laughs> honor that that my my but suffering you, in the in the in the literally almost twenty years ago in the in the May yeah. two thousand five. <laughs> I mean, they can't take you can't take it away from you though. That we still no. salute you and the suffering that you endured <laughs> at the hands of chapel programs of Indiana Wesleyan. That's. It takes nothing away from, from your experience. It was horrible. It was, it was just, it was inhumane. Um, but that, that Asbury thing, that was next level. That was, you know, the Geneva convention should cover that. Like that, that, that's like spiritual and psychological warfare on, on unsuspecting (laughs) people. So. Yeah. 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 They, they deserve it. They deserve it. Well, Scott, thank you so much for uh, talking about your book. Again, the book is Asian American apostate losing religion and finding myself at an evangelical university and chapel probation can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, anything else you want to mention before we sign off? Uh, no, I just, I'm really honored to be on for a second time. Uh, I, I think I've, I've said it many times, you started this whole movement yeah, a long time ago, and 
just getting to know you and listening to the work that you do and reading your work is still to this day inspirational and informative. And so thank you for doing what you do. Uh, thank you very much for those kind words. I really appreciate it. All right.